sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, of course, it's Earth Day today, so we'll be talking about the connections between U.S. militarism and climate catastrophe. Also going to be talking about the upcoming anniversary of the attacks on Odessa, Ukraine, uh, back in 2014 concerning the House of Trade Unions that was uh, attacked by neo-Nazis. And, of course, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, yeah, today is Earth Day, and environmentalists in the U.S. and around the world are raising that alarm about climate catastrophe once again. Of course, this day is not the only day that environmental concerns are raised, but this day, as formalized as Earth Day, is particularly important. Most Americans were made aware of the effects of air pollution in 1962 when naturalist and former marine biologist Rachel Carson published the influential book Silent Spring. Carson meticulously chronicled how DDT, a then widespread pesticide, entered the food chain and caused cancer and genetic damage in humans and animals. Silent Spring caused people to question modern technology's impact on the environment while setting the stage for the environmental movement to accelerate. But it would take another eight years before tangible environmental regulation was passed into law. National Geographic chronicles that one of the original titans of the environmental movement was the father of Earth Day, former Democratic Senator Gaylord Nelson from Wisconsin. Nelson was a staunch progressive and a wilderness lover, and he made it his priority to pass environmental legislation like the 1964 Wilderness Act, which safeguarded federal land, and the 1968 Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, which established a process for protecting free-flowing rivers. Then in January 1969, a devastating oil spill in Santa Barbara, California, inspired Nelson to start a new grassroots approach to the environmental movement. The oil spill, which killed thousands of birds and stained beaches along the California coast, was the largest the U.S. had ever seen at the time and remains the worst in California's history. Students were already in the streets protesting against the Vietnam War, so Nelson looked to that energy to galvanize the same kind of action to focus on the environment. He pitched an idea for a teach-in, a dedicated discussion between faculty and students about environmental issues, and he scheduled it for April 22, 1970, a date between spring break and final exams so that there could be maximum student participation. Pete McCloskey, a California Republican representative, and Dennis Hayes, a young activist at the time, also helped organize the event. And soon, the effort ballooned into what is now dubbed the Earth Day protest. By April 22nd, interest had grown so much that about 20 million Americans at 2,000 colleges and universities and 10,000 grade schools participated in the first Earth Day through demonstrations, declaring rivers, and more. 
the massive protest movement increased environmental awareness in America. And in July of 1970, the Environmental Protection Agency was established by special executive order from Richard Nixon, of all people, believe it or not, to regulate and enforce national pollution legislation. Earth Day also led to the passage of the Clean Water and Endangered Species Acts. In light of the grassroots victory in establishing federal regulations to protect the environment and the people who live in it, that's us, how, you might ask, did we get to a point where we're still talking about how we are in the midst of climate catastrophe? Well, the country's leading oil and gas companies had all the science and research about climate change and the dangers posed by fossil fuels that they were making hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars, extracting and selling. Year after year, top fossil fuel executives heard about the dangers of their industry and its products from their own scientists whose warnings were explicit and often dire, and they completely ignored them. In 1979, just a few years after Nixon established the EPA, an Exxon study said that burning fossil fuels, quote, will cause dramatic environmental effects in the coming decades. The potential problem is great and urgent, it concluded. And this was the warning from Exxon's own scientists all the way back in 1979. But instead of heeding the evidence of the research they were funding, major oil firms worked together to bury the findings and manufacture a counter-narrative to undermine the growing scientific consensus around climate science. The fossil fuel industry's campaign to create uncertainty paid off for decades for them by muddying public understanding of the growing dangers from global heating and stalling political action. The latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC report, found it was now almost inevitable that temperatures will rise above 1.5 Celsius, the level above which many of the effects of climate breakdown will become irreversible. And the IPCC said it could be possible to bring them back down below the critical level by the end of this century, but doing so could require technologies to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which campaigners warned were unproven and could not be a substitute for deep emissions cuts now. The U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said some governments and businesses were lying in complaining to be, sorry, in claiming to be on track for 1.5 degrees Celsius. In a strongly worded rebuke, he warned, some government and business leaders are saying one thing but doing another. Simply put, they're lying and the results will be catastrophic. Not just some governments and businesses, but the primary entities responsible for climate change that has led us to climate catastrophe, the U.S. government, the fossil fuel industry, and the U.S. military, which is the single largest consumer of energy in the country, and in fact, the world's single largest institutional consumer of petroleum, they've all lied us into climate catastrophe, but not one of them have been held accountable for what they've done to the planet and for the precarious future they've created for humanity. No, we're the ones who have to pay the bill that they've rung up. Follow Luke Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. 
And those are today's Talking Points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Tunde Asazwa, the coordinator of the U.S. Out of Africa Network, a project of the Black Alliance for Peace. Tunde, thanks so much for joining Thanks so much for having me. And I'll just add real quick, I'm also a program coordinator at the Black Lions for Peace. But yeah, appreciate appreciate y'all inviting me. Beautiful. Definitely want to get all your honorifics, all your titles in there today. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, you know, you all at the Black Alliance for Peace have um, released this series of uh, these really good graphics, making an explicit connection on Earth Day, which is today, a day where people are uh, focused on the environment and the climate at a time when, you know, <laughs> that we're not facing a crisis, that we're in a climate crisis in this moment. But you all are directly drawing connections between U.S. militarism and climate catastrophe. So just to begin, Tunde, just in the broadest sense, I mean, what are some of the ways that we see uh, U.S. imperialism uh, exacerbating the climate issue? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think uh, it's important to to recognize and make the connection between U.S. militarism, U.S. imperialism, and this climate catastrophe, right? And we should understand that, you know, a lot of folks aren't making that connection because of uh, uh, you know, kind of U.S. influence and, and you know, global policy, uh, like going back to the Kyoto Protocol in 1997 and even in uh, uh, the Paris uh, uh, Accords. But I, I mean, just to speak to your question, right, on, you know, what are the impacts, right? I, I think, you know, we, we can look at uh, a number of different uh, uh, catastrophes that, that have been brought about by U.S. Mater- uh, militarism, whether it's talking about um, you know, U.S. military nuclear testing at the Navajo Indian Re- Reservation between 1944 and 1977, right? The Hanford Nuclear Reservation in Washington State that was, you know, releasing radioactive toxic gases and fluids that affected, you know, the fish and, and, and uh, you know, kind of like the economic circumstances and, uh, uh, you know, food security of, of the Navajo Nation at the time and kind of continues into this day, right? Uh, and, and so I think that's, that's one example. We could also look to the Shinkalobwe uranium mine in the Congo and in, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. That's uh, an ongoing tragedy, even though, you know, it was kind of uh, uh, occurring uh, a few decades ago, like the, there's a sustained impact. And that was just to uh, uh, like they use force, you know, Congolese labor to extract uranium to make atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, that, that were dropped right in, in those countries. I mean, I, I think we could also point to, um, you know, the ongoing, uh, uh, you know, just de- deleterious impacts on, you know, people living around uh, uh, military bases, people involved in military operations, 
right? Like the U.S. military even admits that its people, its its uh, employees, its personnel are constantly exposed to toxins and and environmental hazards that that cause disabilities, right? And and I think you know the the military uh, uh, officers or the the folks who are uh, I guess employed by the military are offered benefits, but local civilian communities around the world aren't offered those be- uh, benefits, and they're exposed to you know just harm and death. Uh, and I think, you know, we could we could even look to, you know, Norfolk, Virginia, where uh, in 2017, uh, 84,000 gallons of jet fuel spilled into a waterway. And, and that, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, brought uh, like an industrial solvent, uh, tricholeptorine, uh, into the ground and uh, kind of, you know, uh, will, will be in the ground for the next 29 years. Right. And so I think you know, we could look to those incidences of pollution, uh, but we could also uh, uh, just understand that the U.S. Department of Defense is uh, uh, like the single largest consumer of energy in the U.S., right? And the world's largest consumer of petroleum, institutional consumer, right? So, you know, since 2001, it's consumed, uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a ton of, of, of petroleum. And, and, you know, 2001 is also when the global war on terror began right so it's you know it's coinciding with kind of like the devastation that the u.s military has been wreaking throughout the world especially in places like you know the, the middle east and north africa so-called um and and so i think we can we can see that this uh this uh you know environmental destruction that the military is is causing is, is linked to you know the death and devastation that it uh it um i guess perpetrates worldwide um, and so I, I think that the, the fact sheet is, is very useful and helpful in going into a lot of those details. Yeah, and it's some of those details, Tunde, that are really just abhorrent. The fact that since 2001 alone, since the onset of the so-called global war on terror, the U.S. military has produced more than 1.2 billion metric tons of greenhouse gases. And when you consider that the military, as it as it's it's pointed out in the fact sheet uh, that Black Alliance for Peace produced, the U.S. military spends one quarter of its fuel to protect access to oil it does not need. Where does it do most of this protecting oil assets that it doesn't need? I'm guessing it's all over the continent of Africa, but I could be wrong, Tunde. Yeah, I think you're I think you're spot on all over the continent of Africa, all over, you know, the so-called Middle East. Um, you know, that that's where they have something like 29 military bases that also, um, you know, are, are causing a lot of pollution and uh, environmental destruction uh, uh, on the continent. Right. And so I think, you know, it, it's important for us to, to understand that this U.S. military is, is a global uh, 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 structure, a global um you know, phenomenon that there is really just uh, destroying uh, the lives of people all over the world in multiple ways, right? It's not just through, uh, you know, the bombs and, and you know, the, the uh, military equipment that, that it, uh, people are dying, but also from this environmental devastation. And, and we could speak about, you know, kind of how the, the, the military kind of facilitates a lot of uh, financial uh, um, and, uh, uh, I guess, uh, just a lot of other types of impacts, right? And so I think we in the, in the Black Lives for Peace, we call for the closure of all 
you know, U.S. military bases. I mentioned that there are something like 29 on the continent, and there are like over 800 around the world, right? And so we understand that, you know, military bases are also a big contributor to things like, you know, pollution, uh, uh, to things like, um, you know, the uh, greenhouse gas emissions and, you know, ground and water pollution. Um, and they're also a big part of, uh, like, U.S. military spending, right? And I think uh, uh, it, it's, it's important to, to, you know, understand that in order to, to confront, you know, the, uh, the looming climate catastrophe that is kind of, you know, ongoing, right? Like, you know, people are experiencing this around the world. Uh, right now, right? Like people are experiencing flooding, they're experiencing, you know, hurricanes and, and typhoons and, you know, just increased uh, incidences of, of uh, uh, climate, uh, um, you know, change that, that's really destroying lives, right? And it's important for us to link that to U.S. militarism and how they spread that militarism around the world, like you said, to protect those fuel uh, uh, assets and resources and, and make sure that they, they're the ones that have access to them. And so, yeah, we call for the closure of all military bases. We call, we call for the defunding of the military because that's, that's a key part of, you know, combating climate change. Yeah. And, you know, what I'm thinking hearing your uh, comments there, Tunde, is just that, you know, the, the climate movement, like if we're really going to critically address these issues and particularly how they, you know, stand to affect so many people, mostly uh, in the global south, seemingly, even though these countries tend to contribute very little to, to the climate issue. It seems then that the climate movement has to be anti-imperialist. And there just seems like there's so many other issues that are bound up in the climate issue, imperialism, race, class, uh, all these sorts of things. And so it, it, it just seems as though once we understand the connection between militarism and climate catastrophe, that that then has to um, inform both how we think and organize around this. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's important for us to make those connections and then also, you know, understand that, you know, in order to combat climate change, you know, we have to, you know, address imperialism and then also make those connections to local struggles. Right. And so, you know, when we see the resources that should be, you know, going to uh, uh, people's needs for like housing, healthcare, education, food and clean water here in the U.S. and around the world are being squandered uh, to support militarism and, and, and war, you know, not just in our local communities, but around the world. Uh, we, we, we have to, you know, make the case or, or you know, start building uh, a power to, to seize those those resources, all this, uh, uh, all these, um, you know, funds that are being spent on uh, uh, militarism so that, you know, people's needs are being met, not just here in the U.S. where there's uh, a lot of need, but, you know, like you said, especially in the global south where people are facing the brunt. Of, of a lot of these uh, issues, but I, I think it's, it's important to connect those dots so that people understand that their issues, their struggles here uh, uh, in, in the U.S. Are, are connected to, you know, what the U.S. is doing here, but also around the world. So, I mean, it, you know, I, I think it's important for us to, for people to make all those connections that you mentioned around, you know, race, right, where, uh, you know, it's in the U.S. military, like 28 percent of, um, you know, the active duty personnel are black, uh, which is more than twice the, the general population of, of, you know, black people in the U.S. Uh, and so they're being exposed to, you know, a lot of these toxins that the, that the military, um, I guess, uh, uh, you know, pollutes or, or, or spreads out into the communities. And then also 
the fact that it's black communities here in the United States that are closest to military bases, for example, like in the South where the majority of the bases are and where a lot of the black population in the U.S. lives, you know, those are the populations that are disproportionately affected, right? And so I think, you know, we can make the connections to what's going on around the world, but then, you know, also link it to what's happening here. Uh, and so I, I think that's important. I think all those things that you mentioned as far as like uh, the, the climate movement needing to, you know, uh, like kind of adopt like an anti-imperialist posture, anti-imperialist politic so that, you know, we can effectively address these issues because it, it, it's ineffective. It, it just misses the point, I think, if folks aren't uh, making those connections, those uh, folks aren't anti-imperialist, if folks aren't addressing, uh, uh, you know, kind of th- that, that uh character that the U.S. really has. And, you know, I think that that's so key. Right. So, you know, absolutely. We need we need to make all those connections with with race and class and all of those things. Absolutely. And if people are interested in seeing uh, this Earth Day fact sheet, you can visit blackallianceforpeace.com slash environment. That's blackallianceforpeace.com slash environment. Well, Tunde, we thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about international solidarity with the people of Odessa, Ukraine. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Phil Valedo, editor of the Virginia Defender newspaper and co-founder of the Virginia Defenders for Freedom, Justice and Equality. Phil, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Sean. And Jackie. Absolutely. And uh, Phil, here soon uh, there will be a kind of a day of international solidarity with the people of Odessa, Ukraine, of course, emanating from uh, what happened on May 2nd, uh, 2014 in uh, Odessa, which, you know, it's been called, you know, one of the worst uh, uh, civil disturbances of its kind in Europe since World War Two. And this is relevant because it's directly related to the current war in Ukraine. And I think it's just one aspect of historical context that is missing in a lot of the conversations uh, around uh, the war in Ukraine, at least here in the U.S. and the West. So I was hoping you could help us understand, you know, what happened on May 2nd, 2014, and how is it relevant to what we're seeing uh, in regards to Ukraine today? Yeah, well, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this because it's it's almost like pulling a curtain uh, across the you know the, the whole issue and opening up an entire different way of, of looking at the current crisis in Ukraine. We're we're being hit with this twenty four seven seven coverage of Ukraine, and the image that's being put out um, is of a you know. A, a very noble, struggling country that's um, a democracy and is, uh, quote-unquote, European, um, I suppose, as opposed to the Asiatic Russians. 
um, which is supposed to be bad. Um, and uh, that, you know, it's just a bunch of uh, c- courageous, noble people fighting for their country against this big aggressor. Well, um, you know, not to downplay the tragedy of what is going on um, in in Ukraine today, because it is a great tragedy. Um, but Ukraine is not that noble, struggling democracy. Um, it has uh, a long history of extreme ultranationalism that is very uh, racist and xenophobic and is colored by the fact that it uh, it came to fruition um, in the struggle uh, uh, against the Soviet Union during World War II. And that, you know, important elements of that ultranationalist movement blocked with the Nazi occupation and participated in, uh, you know, the Holocaust by uh, murdering Jews and Roma people and Soviet prisoners of war and so on. Um, and it, it's you wouldn't know any of this. <clears throat> um so if you just listen to the mainstream news media, <clears throat> so it's important to go back to 2014 when there was a right wing coup um, in uh, in uh, Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, um, a coup that began with a, a, a broad popular movement um, against the president who, like most uh, Ukrainian officials um, of the right or the left or pro-Russia or anti-Russia, were corrupt. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a reason why even the uh, uh, International Monetary Fund, which would like to control uh, Ukraine's economy, keeps, um, uh, you know, is reluctant to... Um, uh, you know, to give it more loans and so on because it hasn't cleaned up its internal act in terms of corruption. Um, so there was a movement, and that movement was was taken over by extreme right-wing elements. Um, that And behind the scenes was the United States. When I say extreme right-wing elements, I mean there were, there were demonstrations uh, around that time um, this is uh, the end of uh, 2013, the beginning of, of 2014, when these protests were taking place. There were demonstrations of thousands of people celebrating the birthday of a man named Stefan Bandera, who was the most prominent ultranationalist uh, during the World War II period. And he was a neo-Nazi, a straight-out neo-Nazi. Um, and uh, he's revered by this nationalist movement. In the, and I want to draw a distinction between a nationalist movement and an ultranationalist movement, um, because you know you can be proud of your country and and want to see it advance and, and want independence for it, but that's different from the ultranationalists who are basically you know white supremacists. Um, and uh, there were these mass marches in um, Lviv, uh, in the western part of the country, in Kiev. Um, and I'm getting this from photographs that were published in USA Today uh, and the Associated Press, and celebrating Stefan Mandera, who now is regarded as a hero of the country. He's the one who popularized the slogan, uh, glory to Ukraine, um, glory to uh, the heroes, um, which is now an official uh, slogan of the Ukrainian military. Um, so the the president was overthrown and a, a new government came into power that played up the uh, the ultranationalist movement um the coup was taken over as said by right wing elements meaning groups like right sector and and other uh 
you know, extreme uh, paramilitary organizations. Um, there was fighting in uh, the city of Mar- uh, Maripool, which is getting a lot of play now, um, and an organization called the Azov Battalion was formed out of previous extreme right-wing organizations um, and uh, was succeeded in um, defeating the separatist forces in that city. And that's their claim to fame. Um, And they are uh, another neo-Nazi organization that has now been incorporated into the Ukrainian military. So a few months, uh, you know, after the coup, things were pretty rough for ethnic Russians um, in the area who were assumed to be sympathetic to Russia. And that, and, and it's not just a, a racial difference. The ultranationalists identified with uh, Stefan Bandera and his forces from World War II and uh, assumed that the, uh, the Russian-speaking uh, uh, people, as well as the ethnic Russians, because more people speak Russian than are uh, ethnic Russian, that they, they were would have been sympathetic to the Soviet Union. So it's a right-left conflict as well as an ethnic conflict and a, a language conflict. Um, so anywhere in, in the country, uh, people who were uh, ethnic Russian felt under attack, threatened. Um, the the uh, use of um, the Russian language and official state policy was banned. The, the uh, right-wing forces were out on the streets, um, intimidating uh, and trying to intimidate people who they you know felt were had opposed the coup. Um, and in uh, Odessa, and this is, of course, when Crimea, which is uh, predominantly ethnic Russian and had been part of Russia for 300 years um, under the Tsarist Empire and then under the Soviet Union until 1954, when Nikita Khrushchev, the leader of the Soviet Union, administratively transferred it to Ukraine, I think it was uh, to mark 300 years of um, association with Russia and Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, so it was kind of an administrative shift. But at any rate, that's when that's why Crimea was part of Ukraine in in 2014, and the folks there decided uh, they didn't want to live under a right wing anti Russian uh, government. Had a referendum and decided to separate and rejoin Russia. And um, uh, in the Donbas area, you had a similar situation. Uh, and this time there were leftist forces, and they declared their independence from Ukraine and from the People's Republic of Lugansk and the People's Republic of Donetsk, settled on those two major cities. And the Ukrainian army uh, tried to retake the area, and there's been fighting there uh, off and on since 2014. The city of Odessa was kind of a, a particular situation. Odessa um, is a city that was created by uh, Catherine the Great um, in the late 1700s. The city itself is not as old as Richmond, Virginia, um, and it's very multiracial, multinational, um, and has always had sort of a um, sort of a Key West kind of a flavor to it. Um, there, there was a, a corruption in the official. Uh, you know, a government, but there was also, it's a big port city and there was a lot of uh, smuggling going on. And, and um, it, it was sort of complemented by kind of a libertine spirit in the city. And it was a place that, that you know, uh, they used to call Atlanta a city too busy to hate. Um, and Odessa was a city too busy to worry about national politics. Um, and uh, the Russian, the ethnic uh, Russian population was a minority in the city, but um, the vast majority of people spoke Russian. 
So after the coup of 2014, um, there was tension between uh, people who supported the coup and people who opposed it. Um, but the people who supported the coup were in a minority in the city. But they draw a lot of their, uh, the ultra-right groups draw a lot of their support from soccer fans. Uh, that seems funny to us in the United States. <clears throat> Um, because as you know, as enthusiastic as people may be about their home teams, they don't generally, you know, go out and engage in, in mass brawling in the streets. But there's a culture they call the the fans are called the ultras. There's a, a culture of people kind of uh, in, uh, using the soccer culture to engage in what we what we probably call a fight culture where it's anticipated that there will be brawls between the different fans and so on. And it takes on a very right-wing character, and it also is generally associated with the ultra-nationalist movement. It's an interesting phenomenon. And the, the right-wing neo-Nazi groups do a lot of recruitment from those, um, uh, from those uh, you know, that, that milieu uh, of the ultras. So in Odessa, there was a movement among uh, progressives to uh, to demand that uh, the constitution be changed so that local provinces called oblasts could elect their own governors, similar to what we have in the United States, where you know every state elects their own governor. But in Ukraine, the governors were appointed by the president. Now the president was a right wing anti Russian government, and and uh, so it made sense to to make this basically democratic demand. They weren't demanding separation. They weren't demanding independence. Um, they weren't condemning the coup. They were simply saying, uh, we want the right to elect our own governor. So there was a petition campaign. And they kind of set up an informal headquarters in a place called Kulikobo Square, which is a large public square in Odessa. Um, and it's kind of dominated by this five-story building, um, the House of Trade Unions. It's owned by trade unions, but it's not exactly a, a trade union headquarters. They rent it out to different, um, uh, you know, organizations or companies and so on. But it's called the House of Trade Unions, and they set up uh, tents and um, uh, tables, and um, that's where they kind of centered their petition campaign. So there was this one particular weekend, the beginning of May, when there was a big soccer game in town. And people were coming from all over the country, and there were uh, there had been competing marches in the city. People who were uh, supporting the coup, and people who were promoting this uh, this demand for a local election of, of provincial governors. And on May second, there was a big nationalist march, um, and there was a counter march um, by people opposed to the coup, and there was a clash, and the. Uh, the ultras were much greater in number, and they chased the uh, the anti-coup folks back to Kulikovo Square. There were a few hundred of uh, the uh, the people supporting the petition campaign, and a few thousand uh, of those in this nationalist march. So you had this you know this right wing mob, and the leadership of it was uh, people in the neo Nazi organizations. And they forced the uh, the uh, petitioners into the House of Trade Unions and then started peppering it with Molotov cocktails. And some of those, you know, went through windows and fires were set inside and there was a lot of smoke and um, the water and electricity was cut off to the building, which is interesting because um, I don't know about you, but I would have no idea how to cut off water or electricity to an entire building, but somebody knew. Um, and the police... <coughs> 
when they finally showed up, they stood back and watched. Uh, the fire trucks tried to come up, but the elders blocked them. So the building was on fire. And a lot of people were taking cell phone videos. And you can just go on online and, and, uh, and Google May 2, 2014, Odessa. And you'll find a lot of these. You'll find documentaries. You'll find cell phone videos. But um, whether or not you want to take the documentaries at face value, you can see the videos. And you can, you can see people throwing them all off cocktails. You can see people hanging out of windows. Um, you can see people jumping from the third and fourth story and then being beaten when they hit the ground. Some 42 people died uh, from, fire, uh, from burns, from smoke inhalation, or from being beaten. Um, hundreds were wounded. And to this day, no one has been punished for participating in, in this massacre. No one. Even though you can see their faces uh, on, the, on the cell phone videos and progressives in the city have identified them, you know, the individuals. So um, there was no investigation, but it was, a, it was a horrible tragedy that galvanized the people of Odessa, who immediately the next day came out to the site and um, laid flowers um, and uh, religious symbols and demanded uh, an investigation. There has never been a legitimate investigation of the massacre. There's been phony investigation by the government, but they, they didn't amount to anything. Um, so the people have been demanding an international investigation, and the Ukrainian government has blocked that. I mean, they didn't even, the local police did not even tape off the, the, uh, the building as a crime scene. Um, after the massacre. And so, you know, people, a lot of people came and were wandering through the building and were just, you know, horrified at what they saw, which helped to galvanize the opposition. So a group was formed called the Council of Mothers of May 2, of uh, mothers and other relatives and supporters of the, of the victims. And they uh, have been, uh, were for many years responsible for uh, keeping the memory of this massacre alive. Um, and the people were going back every week and then every month um, and, and a big uh, memorial every year. Uh, at the site. And every time they went out, whether it's, you know, during the week or the month, um, some of the right wingers, particularly from the group right sector that, that was formed during the coup um, of 2014, formed from previous right wing parties and organizations, they would come out and harass people and, and physically attack them. Um, the the uh, woman, Victoria, um, I, I'm sorry, I, I'm blocking out her last name, but um, a woman who's, who's had a, uh, a son who was in the building but managed to escape um, the, the massacre. Um, she's the president of the group. Um, when, when I knew her, I guess she was in her late 40s. And, and this uh, guy, Sergi, the head of the local um, right sector group at the time, he came up to her one, one, at one of these memorials and just punched her in the face. Wow. And the police, um, you know, uh, backed him off but never arrested him. Um, she's been under a lot of uh, pressure. Uh, over the years, and we're no longer in contact. Um, so, uh, in in 2016, uh, well, in 2015, there was a conference of the United National Anti-War Coalition in New York, um, and uh, the leadership invited uh, members of the Council of Mothers to come and make a presentation about what had happened in Odessa. Uh, people they were really trying to get the news out. So I saw some of the pictures there um, and videos, but um, it didn't really sink into me the significance of what had happened. But the following year, um, 
I was asked to represent uh, UNAC, the coalition, uh, at a conference in Wrocław, uh, uh, Poland. Um, it was a, a social forum uh, conference. And um, had an opportunity to meet the same people who had come to the UNAC conference. And uh, this time, um, we uh, we asked uh, Anna Edwards from the Defenders, uh, who's there also, and we uh, asked to meet with the, the, the Council of Mothers because it seemed to everyone at the conference, this group was the most um, under the most pressure. Um, and so they showed us a video they had made about the massacre, and it was just you know really stunning. Um, and we asked how we could help, and, and we thought that they would say something like, um, you know, you can sign our petition for an international investigation. You could write about it, spread the word. And instead, they said, well, on, on May 2nd, we're having our second annual memorial, and, and the neo-Nazi organizations are publicly saying they're going to come out and attack us. And so we're asking people from other countries to come as international observers and stand with us. So would you come to Odessa on May 2nd? And um, I swallowed hard <laughs> and thought about um, uh, the folks who went to Mississippi uh, in 64 for Mississippi Freedom Summer. And I realized I had just got myself out of big things. Couldn't say no. I mean, we had already offered to help. So uh, I said, sure. So um, we managed to find two other people um, who were willing to go. Bruce Gagnon, a longtime anti-war activist and, and head of the uh, uh uh, global network against weapons and nuclear power in space, um, and uh, uh, Regis Tremley, who's an independent videographer um, and uh, who works with Bruce. And um, so the three of us went over and uh, to the memorial, and um, we had uh, some very interesting experiences, including running into the the Azov Battalion folks who threw stones at the uh, um, the bus we were in with the Council of Mothers. Um, once they realized that these elderly women uh, were, uh, you know, uh, going to the memorial, um, they jeered and gave the Nazi salute and threw stones at the bus um, and did show up at the rally. But we, there was some 4,000 people who came out for the memorial and a few hundred of the neo-Nazis. So um, the day came off okay. And we had taken the precaution of doing an international support campaign that got the attention of the U.S. State Department, which then knew that there would be, you know, uh, U.S. citizens um, in Odessa on that day. And we hope that that you know, has something to do with them telling the Ukrainian government, you know, now's not the time to kill Americans because then you'll, uh, you know, uh, there'll be news about that. And otherwise, we can make sure that there's no news about the massacre or the uh, memorial, which the yeah, and, you know, Phil, it's interesting that you tell that backstory because I, I remember you asking uh, me and Abdus if we wanted to go with you to Odessa. And, uh, you know, we kind of had the same response you did. Odessa? Ukraine? Hmm. And we weren't able to go at the time. But what we did do when you came back was to participate in a solidarity action uh, with uh, the Odessa trade unionists uh, and the uh, the groups that you talked about uh, in front of the Ukrainian embassy in Washington, D.C. It was just Abdus and myself reading a statement uh, of solidarity uh, that we filmed. And uh, I, I remember printing out one of the pictures, one of the grisliest, 
most horrific pictures of one of the victims of the fire, someone who had died in the fire, printing that out and and pasting it on a big poster board, along with another uh, poster that said, you know, U.S., EU, NATO, out of Ukraine with a map of Ukraine and, and all of that. And we did that in 2018. Uh, We left those posters in front of the Ukrainian uh, embassy, like literally on the steps of the Ukrainian embassy. Uh, We got followed, uh, uh, approached and followed home by the Secret Service police that day for our trouble. We were glad to do it. But it leaves me with this question. How has this horrific incident that we are still having to explain to people is a part of the lead up to this uh, conflict in Ukraine. How has it been overshadowed uh, and completely dismissed since this is really a part of the beginning of uh, the civil war uh, that was unleashed in uh, Ukraine after the 2014 coup? And it really is a part of the foundation of uh, this current conflict uh, in Ukraine? Well, when it comes to foreign policy, particularly times of crisis, the U.S. news media pretty much always closes ranks around the government line. Um, That didn't used to be the case. I mean, during Vietnam, there there were journalists working for mainstream media who went over to Vietnam and operated independently and reported back on what was happening. And the government decided that was never going to happen again. So now we have embedded journalists, which means uh, journalists whose lives depend on uh, having a good relationship with the U.S. military, um, which they're traveling with. Um, And so we don't hear, um, you know, uh, anything but the official line. Um, And I think it's hard for most people to realize that because the anti-war movement has been so weakened over recent years um, that, uh, you know, for many reasons, uh, uh, that um, they don't hear an alternative view. So when we go back to uh, May 2nd, 2014, which was reported on internationally, not so much in the United States, um, although it was. And when we go back to the videos and we, and we explain the fact that the same organizations that carried out this massacre are now respected, you know, organizations with political parties in Ukraine, um, that it, it gives a different uh, view of the country. And um, it, it, it makes people uh, who are, you know, trying to find out what's going on, um, gives them a little uh, more insight, you know, uh, President Putin is talking about denazifying the country. Um, it's the, the government is not a Nazi government. It's not a fascist government, but it tolerates and under uh, different leadership promotes an ultra-nationalist uh, movement that um, that honors the neo-Nazis of the second uh, of the uh, the Second World War. So there's some you know basis for what he has to say, although it's you know totally dismissed here. Um, uh, in the news media and the government. And when, pe- when the news media does talk about 2014, they say when Russia took over uh, Crimea and there was an independence, uh, a, a Russian-supported or directed independence movement in Donbass, um, which means they don't talk about the coup, uh, which was the reason for the separatist movements. Um, they just 
eliminated completely. So by going back and talking about May 2nd, when we say talking about May 2nd, what are we talking about? We're talking about when um, uh, Bruce and, and Regis and I got back. Um, the Defenders launched uh, a project called the Odessa Solidarity Campaign um, that each year has has uh, tried to encourage local actions uh, anywhere in the world um, in solidarity with the people of Odessa and to continue to demand for an international investigation. And last year, there were protests or some kind of actions in 20 cities across North America and, um, and Europe. Um, and this year, we're hoping, um, working in conjunction with uh, two other organizations, a group called the Union of Political Emigrants and Political Prisoners of Ukraine, um, which are folks who basically had to leave the country after the coup, um, and the Co-op Anti-War Cafe in Berlin, which is an anti-war center that has a lot of contacts throughout the uh, the country, um, and uh, a group called the Red Square Molotov Club, which is a, a leftist organization um, with uh, members around the world, many of them members of, of official communist parties, um, such as in Bangladesh or Brazil. Um, and the Odessa Solidarity Campaign, the Anti-War Cafe, the Union of Political Immigrants and, and Red Square have jointly issued a call for this year's local actions. Um, and this is significant because... Um, a lot of these organizations have, you know, uh, international contacts and mass bases. Um, this call has been endorsed by the United National Anti-War Coalition, by the International Action uh, Center, um, by the uh, 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 Mobilization Against War and Occupation in Vancouver, uh, Canada. Um, and, um, you know, we're, we're continuing to, uh, to get, uh, more endorsements and commitments from groups to hold some kind of actions. And, um, representatives of the Union of Political Immigrants, the Co-op Anti-War Cafe, and the Odessa Solidarity Campaign will be putting together a webinar that can be shown on May 2nd, going over, uh, the background to, um, uh, what happened in 2014, but also, the expansion of NATO, steady expansion of NATO uh, towards Russia since the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, and particularly the U.S. support for the 2014 coup to try to uh, explain um, the events and processes that led up to Russia's decision to launch a war uh, on Ukraine. Um, we have not, uh, we are neither supporting nor opposing that Russian action, but we're trying to explain why it happened. Um, people can debate the wisdom um, of the Russian action, but uh, uh, too many uh, so-called peace organizations in this country are, um, are uh, taking the position that they're calling for Russia. To, uh, they're condemning Russia for the invasion. And then further down the list, they talk about NATO or and maybe the 2014 coup. Um, which we think is is uh, completely backwards. Um, even if they were going to condemn the Russian invasion, the first thing they need to do is condemn NATO and the U.S. support for the coup, and that's not what they're doing. So, unfortunately, uh, you know that flows out of their own internal politics, and I'm afraid also capitulation to this tsunami of um, of anti-Russian propaganda that we're hearing. Um, it's difficult in this situation to take a nuanced position, but um, you know, they say the first casualty of war is truth. But um, 
a nuanced position is what is so necessary because it's not like the Vietnam War where Vietnam veterans returning home marched down the street with NLF flags, National Liberation Front chanting, ho, 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 chi men, the NLF is going to win. Um, I don't think anybody's chanting, you know, uh, in support of, of the Russian invasion. But that doesn't mean that um, there weren't reasons why Russia came to the conclusion that they were under an existential threat and had to respond. And um, the U.S. Uh, strategy is not to directly fight Russia. <clears throat> They're probably very happy with this war because it's weakening Russia politically and militarily and financially. What they want to do is bring down the Russian government um, in a color revolution, so-called where they make life so difficult through the sanctions on the people of Russia that they uh, rise up and overthrow their own government. That's the, the pattern that they've carried out in other countries. They've tried to promote in Iran. That's their strategy in Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba. Um, and it's, you know, we have those of us who know what's going on, who think we know what's going on, you know, we have to keep hammering away at this, even if it's two people standing out in front of the Ukrainian embassy. And I'm telling you, Jack, I was very worried when I saw that video of you, you know, you're standing in front and, and Avi is, um, is taking the video. And I'm thinking, Jesus, I mean, I know there's right wingers around and the embassy could just, you know, get on the phone and call them and uh, you'd be in trouble. But you, you, you did it. And that was you know, a, a great act of courage and determination. And we're, hopefully, we're trying to encourage people, even if it's three or four of you on a street corner in a city uh, where you live, get out there and hold a sign that say, we stand in solidarity with the people of Ukraine. We remember May 2. Um, that would be important. So we think there'll be, you know, demonstrations in at least dozens of cities, um, at least across North America and, and Europe, and hopefully in other countries. Um, and by showing our solidarity with the victims of the Odessa massacre, we, it opens the door to talk about the current uh, political situation in Ukraine and maybe help people to begin to question some of the propaganda um, that they, they've been deluged with. Definitely. And I think what you said a moment ago is so important, Phil, that uh, it is a difficult time for the anti-imperialist movement in the U.S. and the West. But it is absolutely crucial and necessary that we do have a nuanced and complex and sophisticated analysis of uh, the situation so that we can have our own uh, uh, independent analysis to carry through an independent anti-imperialist movement. Well, we thank you so much, Phil, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, April 22nd, 2022. And of course, in 
20 minutes. You'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. All our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, can reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C by calling us at 3202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320 at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio slash by underscore any underscore means. Also on sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. You can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And we're streaming live right now on Rumble at rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, today is a very special hour for By Any Means Necessary, uh, which we're titling Freedom Dreams, Imperialist Nightmares, Class Struggle, in the time of capitalist decline. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Robin D.G. Kelly, an activist, historian. He is the Gary B. Nash Professor of American History at UCLA and the author of several books, including Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, and Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists During the Great Depression. Dr. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Sean, it's great to be with you. That's a great title, by the way, for the show. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, Dr. Kelly, in this moment, it feels very much like we're entering a new era in domestic and global politics. And this is happening on many levels, right? There's a tragic war in Ukraine made even more tragic by its role as a proxy or the U.S. imperialist war drive, economic relations shifting as a sanctioned Russia is trading in alternative currencies, food and fuel prices rising across the global South and the world, also a consequence of this war. Meanwhile, here in the United States, a racist police terror continues just two years after a massive rebellion against racism, almost a million people dead from COVID-19 in the wealthiest nation in the history of nations, Over 100 million people in poverty in a country that's increasingly becoming too expensive to live in. Right before our very eyes, we're witnessing the raging, interlocking contradictions of a capitalist system that is painfully aware of its own deterioration and with it, the deterioration of imperialism, capitalism's proudest son. Now, I don't believe that either of these institutions are going to collapse in the immediate future, and I certainly don't think they're going to go down without a fight. Indeed, they're fighting like hell right now as we speak. So, Dr. Kelly, when we talk about the black radical, the black radical imagination 
a force that <clears throat> has always had a material base and is always located squarely in reality. What does it have to offer us in this political moment? Right. Well, this is an important conversation to have on Earth Day, of all things, because if anything, uh, you know, global capitalism and imperialism is trying to take all of us down. And one thing that the black radical tradition, and I would argue uh, you link that to almost all anti-colonial, anti-imperialist movements going back 500 years, that this has been a battle for life. You know, that the vision of the revolutionary vision of the, of the black radical tradition is one in, that goes even beyond the idea that we should inherit the, the modern industrial state and just sort of make it better for all, but rather to transform this earth that we live in to make it not only sustainable, but life-giving. I mean, one of the most important things, I think, at the center of the story is the fact that at the end of a pandemic, uh, not like, not unlike, you know, after the pandemic of 1918 and we end up with a period of boom, bust, and war, um, we're dealing with the same thing. War is the driver, military accumulation is the driver of the catastrophe we're facing right now. And although a lot of people are really up in arms about uh, Ukraine uh, for good reason, there's Yemen, there's Palestine. There, I mean, in other words, we have been living in a state of war for a generation or more, actually the, the whole 20th century. Um, and part of what drives war and with the black radical tradition coming out of, from figures like, you know, Paul Robeson, W.B. Du Bois, to, um, uh, uh, to Ella Baker and others, is challenging this war machine. So imagine what it means when we have a black president, for example, who in 2016 uh, announces a trillion dollar nuclear modernization program which is a victory for whom? For Bechtel Corporation. And we're worried about, um, for good reason, worried about the threat of nuclear war as we're building nuclear weapons under the, under the, the president is supposed to be the drum major for justice, right? And we know it's not true. Uh, we are concerned about um, uh, the fact that we have uh, a, a black, uh, you know, uh, secretary of, of defense who is a shill or the defense industry at a moment when, you know, the increase in military spending, you know, from 2003, accounted for like 70% of the rise in U.S. GDP, right? And then if you jump forward just more recently, uh, the Senate approved a military budget of $786 billion, which is more than what the Pentagon asked for, at a moment when, as you say, the world's in crisis, so many people are housing insecure, the debt crisis is just going off. And what does the debt crisis mean? The debt crisis is an opportunity for finance capital. So it feels like we're, we're losing so much. It feels like you know, we're at the, the sort of teetering at the, on the precipice of catastrophe. But what does the black radical tradition give us in that face? It gives us a sense that there's no promise of liberation. Um, there's no promise of freedom. But we have no choice but to fight. You know, we have no choice but to, to make demands that this that our tradition is about um, taking back uh, the means of giving life. 
and you know, no, no matter what, you know, like, like I said, by any means necessary to do that, and to do so in a way that isn't that doesn't mirror the the capitalist ethos, the militarism, but actually challenges it and eventually overthrows it at some point. And this, is, I just I think, is important thing to talk about the militarism because it's a way in which you know we sometimes celebrate or embrace U.S. militarism as an avenue for um, black upper mobility, you know, and we've got to reject all that, that whole myth. And I think, you know, Dr. Kelly, as someone who I think uh, my own political awareness evolved from people like W.E.B. Du Bois and, and Ella Baker and certainly Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and all of those folks, and I deepened my understanding of the connection between uh, labor struggles and the struggles for democracy and abolition actually from reading Hammer and Ho, to tell you the truth, which is honestly one of my favorite, favorite books to read. Um, I do read it once or twice every couple of years just because it is so rich in so many lessons of how to carry out the practice of this theory that we that we immerse ourselves in as socialists and communists and the people who were involved in carrying out that practice. How, how do you see the movement for abolition, the movement for labor struggles, uh, the movement toward socialism and against imperialism, the anti-imperialist movement? How do you see them against the framing of those struggles that you chronicled in Hammer and Ho and your other works? And, and do you see that we are on the same path or do you think our paths have somehow diverged to create separate paths that need to be woven back together to get back on track? Right. Well, the last point you made is, is key. Um, there are many paths that have to be woven together. I mean, could you imagine an abolitionist movement that is not at the same time anti-capitalist? Mm. And unfortunately, we, we are seeing that. I'm not saying that, the, I mean, the vast majority of people who identify themselves as abolitionists um, either see themselves as either, you know, anarchists or socialists or some kind of anti-capitalist position. But, but you know, do you remember when that, the film 13th came out? And, you know, whatever people think about that film, one of the problematic elements of it was you have uh, Angela Davis, who's an authentic abolitionist and anti-capitalist, in the same screen with the Koch brothers, as if somehow decarceration is the same thing. So you have people in the name of abolition in the political sphere, uh, misleaders, who will say, yes, you know, we have to decarcerate, we have to eliminate prisons at some point. And how can we monetize that? You know, <laughs> how, how do we how, how can we sort of create new industries out of what's perceived as abolition? How do we monetize or how do we sort of talk about the abolition of, of the police state and not talk about the abolition of war? You know, anyone who's talking about the abolition of war knows you're talking about the end of capitalism as we know it. That's that's those things are, are tied together. What's tragic, I think, is that there is there is a kind of theme in certain um, 
identity politics, and I, I'm trying to be careful here because I don't want to offend anyone, uh, in which some, some folks, some movements have given up on the possibility of building the class, building class power, and, you know, building class power across these lines of race and ethnicity, uh, as if that's not possible anymore. And it's a very, it's a kind of a pessimistic position, which is different from the pessimism that I began with. When I said that when, when you know, the Black radical tradition is one that recognizes the catastrophe, but knows there's no choice but to fight. And even the notion of strike a blow and die, because when you fight, you're also fighting for generations ahead of you. Even if you don't think you could win, you fight and you fight because you're trying to build the world that you know is necessary for generations to come and save the planet. That's a different kind of pessimism from saying, there's nothing we can do but just wait because all these other people are just useless. Um, all these other people are so anti-Black that they're not going to build solidarity with us. That's an anti-socialist position. That's, a, that's an anti-radical position, I think. Because part of our task, and part of our task historically, has been to build movements, sometimes lead movements, and sometimes drag people along who at first don't recognize that it's in their interest to build the class. You know, that's our work. That's the work ahead of us. And it's very hard work. Um, and so like, a, like Hammer and Ho was sort of about that. It's about Black people who discovered the Communist Party and they discovered it through the Bible. They discovered through the traditions that they knew. And they built a movement that challenged class power and that really didn't compromise, you know, on the key questions. They weren't producing a political class uh, because that same political class that was built on the sort of the, the wings of the radical wing of the civil rights movement and the black freedom movement, uh, that same political class were often the same people who signed the death warrants that expanded the prison industrial complex, that expanded expend expenditures on police, that actually did things like, you know, Bader Jackson in Atlanta breaking the sanitation workers' strike, you know, after King had fought and died in support of the Memphis sanitation workers' strike. You know, so part of, of building, uh, tying all these movements together, as you're saying, an, an anti-capitalist movement, a, a socialist movement, an abolitionist movement, an anti-racist movement, a feminist movement, a movement for the reproductive rights, a queer and trans movement, all these things, they have to be tied together um, and also recognize that sometimes the people who look like us or may have the same gender, sexual identity, are not necessarily our friends, but they stand on the other side of this movement. You know, so that's part of this kind of class alignment. You know, how to how to build that movement, and it's not an easy thing to do, and it's always dynamic and shifting and changing. But if we don't build that movement, we're all doomed. All of us. That's a fact. And you said several things that, that I think are worth uh, uh, touching on here, Dr. Kelly. I mean, number one, I appreciate you raising this idea of struggling for the future and for future generations. I mean, I think all the time about all the black people, all the Africans in this country who fought to end slavery, who knew they may likely never be able to taste freedom. They may never know a day of freedom but understood the importance of carrying the struggle through in the way that they can. I mean, you know, we look at all the different slave rebellions that took place in the United States or what is today the U.S. 
and how more often times than not they were betrayed, uh, uh, the mm-hmm. organizers slaughtered, things like this. You know what I mean? But yet, mm-hmm. understanding the need to fight back in this midst of catastrophe is uh, uh, what spurned them on. And also, I mean, this issue of identity reductionism that that you're raising, it, 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 we talk about it from time to time here by any means necessary, and it's important, right? Because number one, and I always remind people of this, a lot of these ideas that are, at this point, basically mainstream, they're not even really, uh, you know, just confined to movement circles. They've definitely entered the mainstream. But I always remind people that these are ideas that don't emanate from poor, working, and oppressed communities or struggles here in the United States. They emanate out of the academy. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's why, right. to me, they, they often take on this uh, liberal, individualistic sort of way of thinking. And I think that that's an aspect of this kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, influencer, social media personality way of organizing that uh, 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 some folks unfortunately have. And that is an issue because under that way of thinking, it is the identity of the individual and the nexus of oppression and exploitation that they live at that is considered the primary political subject and the primary uh, uh, contradiction. Even though within that, you often hear folks, you know, talk about capitalism and things like that, but it's not an ideology that's rooted in class. And right. therefore, I think we, we get a lot of, uh, frankly, sh- you know, strange uh, uh, sorts of way of, of dealing and, and, and building. And even on this question of abolition, I really want to dig into that because you're, you're correct when you talk about how, um, how popular it is to be known as an abolitionist in this moment. I, I think that that idea has uh, entered the mainstream as well. But what, what, what bothers me in these popular conversations about abolition, Dr. Kelly, is uh, it seems to lack an understanding or at least an analysis of the kind of process that it would take for that to actually happen. And really, I think it's beyond that. It's more of a sort of misunderstanding of the nature of the state as a concept. Because to me, I don't think you can abolish capitalist law enforcement without abolishing capitalist law, which, you know, enshrines the right of private property and protects the interest of the ruling class. And within that, of course, would necessitate a revolutionary transformation of this society and this system completely. Right. And right. I, I think that, um, you know, in an attempt to rage against what is, of course, a thoroughly inhumane and brutal and genocidal and blood sucking system, I just think that some of these ideas get get sort of muddied and sort of muddled, you know? So how do you think, you know, we can thread the needle, if you will, and perhaps bring some more clarity about what we mean when we use the word abolition? Right. Well, the last point you made is, is key. There are many paths that have to be woven together. I mean, could you imagine an abolitionist movement that is not at the same time anti-capitalist? 
and unfortunately, we we are seeing that. I'm not saying that. The, I mean, the vast majority of people who identify themselves as abolitionists um, either see themselves as either you know anarchists or socialists or some kind of anti-capitalist position. But but you know, do you remember when that the film Thirteenth came out? And you know, whatever people think about that film, one of the problematic elements of it was you have uh, Angela Davis, who's an authentic abolitionist and anti-capitalist in the same screen with the Koch brothers, as if somehow decarceration is the same thing. So you have people in the name of abolition in the political sphere, uh, misleaders, who will say, yes, you know, we have to decarcerate, we have to eliminate prisons at some point, and how can we monetize that, you know? <laughs> how, how, do we, how, how can we sort of create new industries out of what's perceived as abolition? How do we monetize or how do we sort of talk about the abolition of, of the police state and not talk about the abolition of war? You know, anyone who's talking about the abolition of war knows you're talking about the end of capitalism as we know it. That's, that's, those things are, are tied together. What's tragic, I think, is that there is, there is a kind of theme in certain um, identity politics. And I, I'm trying to be careful here because I don't want to offend anyone. Uh, in which uh, some, some folks, some movements have given up on the possibility of building the class, building class power. And, you know, building class power across these lines of race and ethnicity, uh, as if that's not possible anymore. And it's a very, it's a kind of a pessimistic position, which is different from the pessimism that I began with. When I said that when, when, you know, the Black radical tradition is one that recognizes the catastrophe, but knows there's no choice but to fight. And even the notion of strike a blow and die, because when you fight, you're also fighting for generations ahead of you. Even if you don't think you could win, you fight and you fight because you're trying to build the world that you know is necessary for generations to come and save the planet. That's a different kind of pessimism from saying, there's nothing we can do but just wait because all these other people are just useless. Um, all these other people are so anti-Black that they're not going to build solidarity with us. That's an anti-socialist position. That's, a, that's an anti-radical position, I think. Because part of our task, and part of our task historically, has been to build movements, sometimes lead movements, and sometimes drag people along who at first don't recognize that it's in their interest to build the class. You know, that's our work. That's the work ahead of us. And it's very hard work. Um, and so like a like Hammer and Ho was sort of about that. It's about black people who discovered the Communist Party and they discovered it through the Bible. They discovered it through the traditions that they knew. And they built a movement that challenged class power and that really didn't compromise, you know, on the key questions. They weren't producing a political class uh, because that same political class that was built on the sort of the, the wings of the radical wing of the civil rights movement and the black freedom movement, uh, that same political class were often the same people who signed the death warrants that expanded the prison industrial complex, that expanded expend expenditures on police, that actually did things like, you know, Bader Jackson in Atlanta breaking the sanitation workers strike, you know, after King had fought and died in support of the Memphis sanitation workers strike, you know, so Part of, of building, uh, tying all these movements together, as you're saying, 
an, an anti-capitalist movement, a, a socialist movement, an abolitionist movement, an anti-racist movement, a feminist movement, a movement for the reproductive rights, a queer and trans movement, all these things, they have to be tied together um, and also recognize that sometimes the people who look like us or may have the same gender sexual identity are not necessarily our friends, but they stand on the other side of this movement, you know? So that's part of this kind of class alignment, you know, how to, how to build that movement. And it's not an easy thing to do, and it's always dynamic and shifting and changing. But if we don't build that movement, we're all doomed, all of us. That's a fact. And you said several things that, that I think are worth uh, uh, touching on here, Dr. Kelly. I mean, number one, I appreciate you raising this idea of struggling for the future and for future generations. I mean, I think all the time about all the black people, all the Africans in this country who fought to end slavery, who knew they may likely never be able to taste freedom. They may never know a day of freedom, but understood the importance of carrying the struggle through in the way that they can. I mean, you know, we look at all the different slave rebellions that took place in the United States or what is today the U.S. and how more oftentimes than not they were betrayed, uh, uh, the organizers slaughtered, things like this. You know what I mean? But yet understanding the need to fight back in this midst of catastrophe is uh, uh, what spurned them on. And also, I mean, the, the, this issue of, of identity reductionism that, that you're raising, it, 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 we talk about it from time to time here by any means necessary, and, and it's important, right? Because number one, and, and I always remind people of this, a lot of these ideas that are at this point basically mainstream, they're not even really, uh, you know, just confined to movement circles. They've definitely entered the mainstream. But always remind people that these are ideas that don't emanate from poor, working, and oppressed communities or struggles here in the United States. They emanate out of the academy. And so that's why, to me, they, they often take on this uh, liberal, individualistic sort of way of thinking. And I think that that's an aspect of this kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, influencer, social media personality way of organizing that uh, 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 some folks unfortunately have. And that is an issue because under that way of thinking, it is the identity of the individual and the nexus of oppression and exploitation that they live at that is considered the primary political subject and the primary uh, uh, contradiction. Even though within that, you often hear folks, you know, talk about capitalism and things like that, but it's not an ideology that's rooted in class. And therefore, I think we, we get a lot of, uh, frankly, you know, strange uh, uh, sorts of way of, of dealing and, and, and building. And even on this question of abolition, I really want to dig into that because you're, you're correct when you talk about how, um, how popular it is to be known as an abolitionist in this moment. I, I think that that idea has uh, entered the mainstream as well. But what, what, what bothers me in these popular conversations about abolition, Dr. Kelly, is uh, it seems to lack an understanding or at least an analysis of the kind of process 
that it would take for that to actually happen. And really, I think it's beyond that. It's more of a sort of misunderstanding of the nature of the state as a concept. Because to me, I don't think you can abolish capitalist law enforcement without abolishing capitalist law, which, you know, enshrines the right of private property and protects the interest of the ruling class. And within that, of course, would necessitate a revolutionary transformation of this society and this system completely. Right. And I I think that, um, you know, in an attempt to rage against what is, of course, a thoroughly inhumane and brutal and genocidal and blood sucking system, I just think that some of these ideas get get sort of muddied and sort of muddled, you know? So how do you think, you know, we can thread the needle, if you will, and perhaps bring some more clarity about what we mean when we use the word abolition? Right. No, no, I think you made these are brilliant points. And by the way, the, I think the academic term for that, that kind of um, focus on the individual subject is called navel gazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which a lot, a lot of stuff happens in the academy. But you know, I think you're absolutely right. You know, abolition, um, there's a really, I think there's a really excellent book uh, called Abolition Feminism that tries to get, that does really get at this question of what is really required. That, you know, the uh, the current capitalist state is, is not equipped because undergirding the modern liberal capitalist state is uh, is liberal law. You know, um, and when we think about terms like law and order, we always focus on the order part, but not the way the law works. And ironically, some of the best scholarship in, you know, critical race theory, uh, which is under attack right now, actually raises this question that, you know, about the limits of liberal law, that the law, no matter how many civil rights or protections uh, or you know protections of of the individual subject, the law is enshrined, you know, uh, in the same kinds of hierarchies of race and class and gender and sexuality, because um, that's how it's functioned. That's that's the role it plays, and so you have to change the law fundamentally. You have to change the way we think about um, our social relationships to each other. And that's what. That's what revolution is all about. I mean, when you talk about being a Marxist, um, social relations of production, social relations of reproduction, these are the things that need to change or that is a, are expected to change in order to secure a true liberatory, emancipatory possibility. Um, and that means things like private property. You know, the our whole um, uh, uh, legal structure is centered around property. The role of the police is to protect private property, not human life. That's what the role, and, and the, even the question of the maintenance of slavery for so many years, it's centered on, can you violate the Fifth Amendment? Can you violate uh, the right of people to own property? Even on a global scale, the idea of national sovereignty centered on can you tell nations that they have to give up the colonies? You know, sovereignty meant holding colonies. And that's why anti-colonialism wasn't really built into the United Nations uh, agenda. It's just like 
you know, um, uh, the, the rejection of, of human beings as property wasn't built into the U.S. Constitution. Um, so if we're going to think expansively about abolition, same thing with uh, women as property. I mean, even to this day, there's a way in which you know, laws around marriage and divorce, laws around family, uh, it centers around property and humans, you know, and property is the thing that determines, you know, how families survive, how, when families split, what gets divided. More importantly, without property, you end up being penniless, homeless, dependent on work. And that is exactly what it means to be the proletariat, <laughs> to, to basically not have property except the property in your, in your body, which then you sell on the market to make a living. You know, so that's where the, the question of abolition is, is treated as a narrowly focused agenda around eliminating the carceral state and police. Then we don't see that what at the center of it is this question of, of, of a world rooted in property and property rights and ownership. And so when we think about the way abolition is used, it's often used, you know, within, it's treated interchangeably with a whole bundle of different words like emancipation, liberation, freedom, decolonization. And I think the fact that there's a tendency, a desire to have abolition stand in for all these other uh, ways of thinking about um, what freedom might mean is part of that, that grasping for something far more expansive than what a lot of people call abolition. You know, um, I do think that the people who really are the theorists of abolition, like, you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore and others do have this, this vision. In other words, for, for people like Ruth, Ruthie, you know, abolition means eradicating all forms of oppression and exploitation, all forms gender, race, class, sexuality. It means ending state-sanctioned violence, which means transforming the state. Um, it means replacing police, military, prisons, all that stuff. But it also means disability justice. It means that all the things that we think of as normative have to be dismantled and rethought. It means protecting the earth, you know, and protecting the earth means the abolition of private property, you know, and the relinquishing of extractive industries and our own personal, as well as not just personal, but kind of collective extraction of the earth without actually um, giving back. You know, it means ending all forms of precarity. Uh, and it basically ultimately will mean ending the nation state. The state form might exist, it might exist in a different way, but we can't continue to have nations in the way that we think of them when national self-determination never really meant that. It always meant this determination of, uh, of capitalist nations over the rest of the globe, you know? So we've got to think really hard about the borders and boundaries that are often used as justification for war, militarism, exclusion, violence, um, and racialization. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means 
necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Dr. Robin D.G. Kelly. And Dr. Kelly, uh, you recently published a piece with the Boston Review entitled Abolition Democracy's Forgotten Founder. And you wrote this uh, about a cat named T. Thomas Fortune, um, who was uh, uh, writing at a time and who had the uh, sort of a different take on the period of Reconstruction and, you know, the politics as espoused uh, by people like W.B. Du Bois and things like this, uh, T. Thomas Fortune, uh, not a you know a Marxist per se, but uh, definitely seemed to have some um, uh, uh, anti-capitalist politics, and sort of understood the fundamentally uh, adversarial relationship between labor and 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 capital. And you know, for me, I often think about you know the need for uh, a third reconstruction in in the United States, a socialist reconstruction, really that pulls from that history. And I think a lot of people uh, in this moment are uh, really trying to glean as much as they can from that Reconstruction history, I think particularly from uh, uh, the piece from Du Bois, right? And I I was just wondering if you could tell us some about T. Thomas Fortune, sort of, you know, his ideas about a working class movement across racial lines and across lines of division and you know, this 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 person who is less well known, I think, in black history. And what do you think his ideas have to tell us today in the 21st century? Right. No, that's a great question. So T. Thomas Fortune was um, a contemporary of, of Du Bois, who was born a slave in Florida. And um, the book, the, the, the essay is actually a new introduction to a new edition of Fortune's book, which is entitled Black and White land, labor, and politics in the South. And this book is pretty extraordinary. It was, it was published in 1884. So this is way before Du Bois' Black Reconstruction, which came out in 1935. And Du Bois, of course, is dealing with the 30s and the Depression and anti-colonialism. Whereas Fortune, um, that book he wrote, I'll say a little bit about it, uh, was in many ways a kind of guidepost for the development of Black populism. So the black populist movement in the 1880s and 1890s, uh, you know, was inspired in part uh, by Fortune's text. It was very popular at the time. And one of the things he, he, he does several things in it. One, he, it's a critique of reconstruction and its failure. Uh, we, you know, we tend to celebrate reconstruction uh, for its potential successes, but he's coming out in 1884. Uh, you know, seeing its collapse. What was important about about the timing of it, and I've argued this elsewhere, is that Reconstruction doesn't actually end in 1877. In the 1880s, it's still alive. You know, there are still Black people running for for public office in places like Virginia and North Carolina. And what Fortune is doing is writing a book saying, look, we're not going to let the Southern oligarchs win. We've got to build an alliance between black uh, workers, 
in small and black farmers and tenant farmers and sharecroppers in the poor whites um, because they're not benefiting from a democratic uh, Jim, well, sort of on the eve of Jim Crow as it's emerging, but a democratic sort of um, uh, propertied uh, uh, ex-Confederate ruling class that will not that will basically convince white workers that all they really need is white skin, no matter how poor they are, no matter how little resources they may have, how much little land they may have, but the white skin is what they need to build an alliance with this ruling oligarchy. So, so in some ways, Fortune's book is predicting what can happen, is calling for interracial working class alliances, but he's also you know, leveling um, a critique of capitalism in the South and across the country. And he is inspired by a very popular thinker in those days named Henry George. And Henry George's position was uh, one way to get rid of this kind of landed, propertyed class, or at least eliminate its power, is through a massive uh, land tax. And if he could just, because what's happening in this period is that the federal government gave railroad companies and all these, you know, industrial magnates all this land for nothing. This is indigenous land, by the way. This is land that that was supposed to be uh, native land held by indigenous people by treaty, but those treaties were all basically ignored. So they're taking this land, they're giving it away to the railroad companies, and meanwhile squeezing poor whites, squeezing black people, of course, and sending black people back to semi, former semi-slavery. And he's saying the only answer is both supporting Henry George's policies of massive tax on land so that speculators could no longer speculate, and then the other thing is to build a movement. Uh, you know, and I have some disagreements with, with Fortune. Um, he's not exactly a socialist, but he's definitely an anti-capitalist uh, to a certain degree. Uh, and by the way, for those who don't know him, he went on to become known as the dean of, of black journalism. You know, he was edited in several papers. He worked for Booker T. Washington for a while. He was part of the Garvey Press uh, and, and died, you know, sadly. Um, uh, kind of penniless and struggling, but he's someone who we should know about uh, and should read. Definitely. And we've got a caller on the line here, Mo from the district. Tell us what's on your mind. Uh, thank you for taking my call. It's always an honor to, to speak to you, Sean and, and Jackie. And it's also an honor to uh, have this moment, Dr. Kelly. Um, just a uh, first saw Dr. Kelly in person. You attended one of our listening group meetings, a jazz meeting that we have a uh, month in, in the district. And I also had the pleasure of, you had a, a lecture in Philadelphia hosted by a dear friend of mine, Anthony Montero in Philadelphia. So, uh, and yes, and, and at that program, uh, you were there with a number of others, Vijay Prasad, as well as uh, Angela Davis. And I, I kind of wanted to follow back up on a philosophical question that uh, Jackie asked you earlier. And I, I'll, I'll, I'll be self-deprecating. In other words, there's a lot of confusion in our community. Uh, and I have so many questions. Uh, one of my favorite books that you've written is uh, on Thelonious Monk. And I look how I remember distinctly how 
you know, that connection with music and the public at large. And it was very clear. The lines of confusion, I'm sure, existed, but it wasn't as defined. I remember that reading that where Thelonious Monk did a concert supporting the likes of Paul Robeson. So, you know, I digress for a moment. But my, my question specifically had to do with, you know, the levels of confusion seeing an abolitionist, for lack of a better kind of descriptive phrase of a term for someone like Angela Davis, her connection to the likes of a George Jackson. But then about 25 or 30 years later, you know, here she is supporting Hillary Clinton. So, I, I, I'm, you know, that is incredibly confusing to me. I, I, if I had the connection to a George Jackson and knowing how pernicious racism and capitalism, all these ills that exist, and then turn around and support someone as diabolical as Hillary Clinton is quite confusing to me. So, I'll stop there. I don't want to ramble, but uh, again, it's a pleasure talking to you, and I just wanted you to expand on that point. Well, thanks a lot for calling in, Mo. Uh, hope to hear from you again soon. And the book that he was referencing by Dr. Kelly is Thelonious Monk, The Life and Times of an American Original. Um, uh, Dr. Kelly, your thoughts? Yes. Yeah, Before I answer the question, I just have to say that one of the greatest days of my life was visiting that listening group in Washington, D.C. Um, D.C. is like the center of the world for intellectuals who think about jazz. And I, I'd never been in a space where all these black men and women are gathered together to talk about this music. And it was just inspiring. Now to answer the question, um, I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for others' uh, political decisions. What I could try to do is try to unpack why um, and what we've lost. and. You know, I think that there are moments where, at least in the last kind of neo, the neoliberal era, the period really since the late 1970s, when um, the state really waged war on our movements in a really robust way, didn't destroy them because they didn't destroy them, but they waged a kind of war. And, uh, you know, in some ways, a lot of people ended up in retreat. And the sad thing about retreat, uh, is that, you know, sometimes there's a kind of a, 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 a calculation about political expediency. And we end up getting this terrible situation of lesser of two evils. I'm not one that subscribes to that, by the way. Um, I, I will, you know, I don't think voting for someone who is uh, a dedicated socialist is a throwaway vote. I also don't think electoral politics is the answer, you know. Um, but I I can't speak to why uh, uh, anyone would support Hillary Clinton. All I know is that when we get caught up in a kind of politics of expediency, and the same thing with Trump, the anti-Trump position, like anyone other than Trump. Well, look, we got we got Joe Biden, who is a disaster, and we we said that everyone said that. You know, and it's proving to be the case. Whatever kind of campaign promises, you know, we got a black woman on the Supreme Court, but that's kind of symbolic politics in a certain kind of way. Um, it's powerful. I'm grateful. I mean, all that. But, but what's the trade-off? The trade-off is 
increased militarism. Uh, the trade-off is uh, double down on expanding police power. Uh, the trade-off is all these promises about ending student debt. It's all been rolled back, you know, um, and we're not, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. So I do think that it's important for us in going forward to take the offensive, to no longer go for, as Barack would call, the okey-doke, that is accepting uh, the lesser two evils as the politics. Um, and even though there's some strategic decisions that have to be made, um, especially in the face of this ongoing fascism, uh, it's still, you know, I come back to George Jackson, because uh, George Jackson defined fascism as what? As reform, you know? So we don't really have, I think, the luxury of being too defensive all the time. We've got to go on the offense. Uh, and sometimes we'll uh, split and divide amongst ourselves. But ultimately, I do think that even those who supported Hillary Clinton, you know, uh, are, are still allies and still very important and still really, I think, you know, trying to make the best decisions under circumstances, you know. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Dr. Robin D.G. Kelly is here. And we have another caller on the line here. Joseph, tell us what's on your mind. Yeah, the guy is talking about he's not happy with capitalism, but Hillary Clinton is a socialist. I mean, come on, guys. I mean, you're using terminology, and this is all political wishwashes, all that you guys are talking about. I mean, so w what does he propose we do? We're a capitalist country. We're on a radio station that promotes more communism and socialism. So what are y'all doing? Brother, I think you got this show misunderstood. Uh, this here is a show that from the very beginning of its existence has been made by and for movement people and organizers, people who are interested in not just analyzing the world, not just analyzing uh, the political situation, but being active in changing it. And just about every single day at some point, if not several times throughout the show, you'll hear people uh, explicitly call for folks to join organizations, to be involved and in all of that. Um, I'm not sure what you were getting at when you talk about Hillary Clinton being a, a, a socialist. Um, and when you say that we are a capitalist country where that's obviously true. And that is precisely the issue. 
And so the question for us is, once we recognize that not only are we living under a capitalist system that needs exploitation, that needs slavery, that needs genocide, that needs the oppression of women, that needs the oppression of LGBTQ folks, that needs the repression of poor working and oppressed people to exist. The only way that that can be changed is through an organized people's movement. So, you, and again, I, I, I got to laugh when you say that you're at a station that, that promotes communism. I mean, look, I know the shows uh, on this station. <laughs> I'm aware of the politics of the folks who host them. These are our uh, uh, colleagues and things like that. And uh, just in short, what you're saying is just not accurate. So, brother, my message to you, I really encourage you to throw off that, that cynicism that I hear in your tone. I encourage you to shake off the inaction that that kind of thinking uh, promotes. And I encourage you to get active, if you're not already, in an organization, in a movement, and in an effort that's going to change this society to solve all of the problems that we're talking about today and that we talk about every single day and have for years. Because the three people on this line have been doing just that. And we're just three individuals, but we're three of many because of the movements and organizations that we're rooted in and active in. It's not too late, brother. You can join the revolutionary struggle as well. Now, uh, Dr. Kelly, a moment ago, you were talking about the politics of political expediency. Forgive me if that's redundant. And you raised uh, the point, you made reference to uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, the, the first black woman to uh, uh, become a Supreme Court justice, right? Yes. And it had me thinking about the illusion of power because I think that's so much of what this symbolic uh, kind of things that we see uh, are really for. Black Supreme Court judge, black president, black vice president, black head of the Pentagon, uh, a black ambassador to uh, the UN, all of these things. We, we are made to feel like we should celebrate when uh, uh, a handful of black folks are handpicked to represent U.S. imperialism uh, in, in all these different ways. We're supposed to be proud of the fact that Colin Powell helped lie this country into the Iraq war. Right. We're supposed to be proud of that. We're supposed to be proud of how the Obama administration uh, toppled uh, the Libyan government of Muammar Gaddafi. I mean, he was, right. you know, a, a sodomized with a bayonet lynched in the streets. And the country of Libya itself went from one of the most uh, uh, prosperous countries on the African continent to a failed state with open air slave markets. And so for me, then it's it's important to sort of discuss uh, the importance of power in and of itself, because I, I tell you, I, I swear that I get this feeling from people sometimes that they're afraid of power. Even if they understand why it's important, there's a kind of fear mm -hmm. of actually having it. But for me, I think that if we remember that this struggle that we're in is a collective one, right? Mm -hmm. And one that has to take on a mass character well, then I think things start to look a little different. But I'm definitely curious your thoughts here about 
the question of power when we talk about class struggle in this epic of uh, capitalist history? Right. No, that's an excellent question. And, you know, the symbolic politics that have really dominated, um, especially 20th and 21st century U.S. Uh, uh, history, you know, it works as a kind of shiny object. So we think, for example, like we say things like, you know, we have a black president, we have a black this, that, and the other, as if somehow it translates into power. We say this about our spending power. How many times have you heard people say, you know, our, uh, our gross expenditures as a community is in billions of dollars. And if we can just pool all that money together, as if somehow, you know, our, the dollars that we have that are often available through debt, that are available, that pass through us through forms of exploitation, that somehow, if we can just pool the money together, if all the rich, wealthy celebrities could pool them, if, if you know, um, if Jay-Z and um, LeBron James got together, you hear this all the time, as if somehow the cash that they have on hand, which is often made through the exploitation of other people, you know, in terms of their side hustles, uh, when, when Jay-Z, you know, had Sean John and it was being made uh, by sweatshop labor in Central America, uh, and that's how he made his money, it's somehow money itself is power, but it's not. It's, you, you hit it right in the head. It's mobilization, it's organization, and it's also having um, an understanding of what we do with power when we have it. So if we take something as basic as like reparations, you know, I'm, I'm so frustrated by a discourse around reparations that says, well, basically you just have to get white people to, uh, to cash app or PayPal you some money. Mm, and that's talk about it. Talk you know, about it. like that's reparations, really? When reparations is about dismantling a system that has extracted wealth from us for so long and taking the mass amounts of, of, of capital and, and wealth and also empowering us to decide what to do with it. And, and you can't have a true reparations process without a decolonization process, without it being a global process, and without basically taking the, re- the reins of power and deciding what to do with these resources. That is what reparations means. It's not that we're going to all like, you know, you give us a Lexus and 40 acres and then we're done, you know, because that does not change at all the equation. Even, even the strategy of allowing black people a certain amount of grants, and this is what's happening, what's happening in Illinois, uh, to purchase homes without actually changing, for example, the way in which race uh, suppresses property values without actually recognizing that only some people could, could have access to these homes and the vast majority will still be uh, housing insecure without actually changing the capitalist dynamic in which housing is private property uh, and, and a, a source of wealth. I think collective wealth accumulation is good as long as, it, as wealth is about redistribution and, and transforming our society as opposed to just making some people the next Jay-Z or the next LeBron James. So that's, that's about how we think about power and when we have it, what we do with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't help but keep going back to this idea of the state and changing what it means 
to say that the state has control over whatever. It literally what we're advocating for as socialists, as communists, as anti-capitalists, as anti-imperialists, as as abolitionists is to change the very nature of the state, Sean. It, it's not it, it oh, everything that people talk about short of that really is a half measure, whether it's cash apping folks for reparations. I mean, look, if you want to send me some money, I'm not going to stop you. But that's not going to change the nature of the state and its relationship to my ability to do anything with that money. You understand? So so people who have a, a fundamental opposition to these very conversations about any of these problems that we are facing beyond capitalism, because that that is always the context that we're having these conversations in what how these problems exist because of capitalism and imperialism, white supremacy and patriarchy. And how how can we imagine a world beyond those systems that make up the state? And what we're saying is, how do we create a new state? What kind of state do we want beyond this state that's killing us all? What do we want? What kind of state do we want after this? Because this state is absolutely on on the ropes. It is absolutely in the the death throes. It's it's fighting like a cornered animal to stay alive. But on the decline it is. So the question Sean is that we're asking and we do this Every day, the question really is, what kind of state do you want on the ashes of this one? Definitely. And we got about five minutes left, Dr. Kelly. So, I mean, whatever you want to offer on that point. That is the fundamental question. And I know that whatever state we have, we have to dismantle this one virtually completely because you can't use the tools to be able to adjudicate uh, justice. You can't do that. So whatever state we are going to build is one that's based on actual uh, uh, deliberative democracy, you know, whether it's, you know, using the image or the, the practice of participatory budgeting, people's assemblies, people really deciding for themselves, both locally and at other levels, what needs to be done. And the, the least of us, that is, when I say the least of these, though those of us who are the most oppressed should also have the largest voice in trying to reimagine a, a new state, you know? Um, and it's not a state that's going to be based on policing, on surveillance, on militarism, uh, but one based on the protection of our environment, on healthy food, on, you know, ending the way in which private property excludes people. There's no reason we should live in a society where anyone doesn't have a place to live or something to eat or health care. These are just basic things, you know, just basic things or basic income. Um, so these are, you know, it, if you go around, to, if you go to a place like Detroit or Jackson, Mississippi or Oakland, California or Washington, D.C., you ask a bunch of kids who are like in the fifth grade, what do you think we need? And they could design the state for us because <laughs> they, they know enough to know what their families are suffering from, what, what, 
what they're denied. And we need a state that, that's capable of providing those basic things and that we, as the people, decide how it's going to be run. And sometimes it doesn't mean majority rule. It means having to fight out and debate and discuss until we come to some consensus. That's a different kind of democracy. It is a grassroots kind of democracy. And my friends, in our last couple of minutes on today's show and for this week by any means necessary, I just want to remind you all that when we talk about fighting against the tide of catastrophe, right? I just want to remind you all that there is a future worth fighting for, but that future is not, cannot be, under this capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist system. You and I have to do our duty to educate ourselves, to be a part of collectives, educating each other, to be active in these different campaigns, uh, addressing different contradictions of this capitalist system. We have to become rooted in communities and in struggle, not only where we live, not only just in the U.S., but all over this earth as the struggling masses of this planet are suffering under the same system that made America, quote unquote, great. And I do hope you'll join us in that effort. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week. Here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Dr. Robin D.G. Kelly, so much for joining us today. We'll be back to next week with a new slate of episodes. As always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.